Hello and welcome to Learning from Legends with me, Peter Switzer. And this week, the legend is cardiologist and media medico, Dr. Ross Walker, who was so straight on what you can believe and not believe about coronavirus vaccinations and what it actually means when politicians tell us we'll have to learn to live with this damn virus. And then we'll be joined by Ross's son, Paul Walker, who has helped create an online solution called Procure Pro, which is aimed at creating back office efficiencies for property developments and the building industry. This could be a startup with a spectacular future. I don't I think I've ever done father and son routines, but I thought this was an interesting uh, uh, pairing to put together to create an interesting session of learning from legends. So let's kick off with Dr. Ross Walker. Thanks for joining us, Ross. That's my pleasure, Pete. Lovely to see you. Now, the, the questions I want to ask you, I think, are on the, the lips, the minds, the, the fingertips of everybody out there. And I think the starting point question is, what does it mean when we hear but politicians in particular say we have to learn to live with the virus. What does that mean to us and our life going forward? Well, the point is, once the vast majority of people have been vaccinated, COVID just becomes like the common cold. It's not a serious illness. And this is the point. When, when two people are vaccinated, even if one of them catches COVID from someone else, it's almost impossible for that person to pass the COVID on to someone else. And, and this is one of the things that really irritates me about the anti-vax brigade and, and the vaccine hesitant people, because what they don't realise is, is the longer they put off getting vaccinated or refuse to get vaccinated, what we may be seeing with this Delta strain is that it could mutate to become an even more serious virus a more contagious virus and an even more deadly virus. And interestingly, Pete, I think that's already happening. If you see what happened at the start of this outbreak, we were seeing a lot of cases, but not a lot of deaths. Mm -hmm. But over the last couple of weeks, the case numbers have dropped. But we're still seeing some days 15 deaths from COVID, which we weren't seeing even a few months ago. And the problem with that is I think the virus is mutating a bit. And the only way around that is for all of us to be vaccinated. So living, learning to live with the virus means trying to knock the thing on the head and just make it like any typical cold. Because a lot of people don't realise this, but a third of the common cold is a common weak coronavirus. And so that's what we will do to this particular SARS-CoV-2 is make it a common cold. So you're saying that people who are maybe afraid to get vaccinated are actually escalating the threat to not only themselves, who, who won't be vaccinated, but to the rest of us as well. Absolutely. That, and it really irritates me. It's a really self-absorbed thing to make a personal decision not to be vaccinated. I, I've had people come in to see me. I saw a morbidly obese man the other day in his 50s with what we call a dilated cardiomyopathy, where the heart's not pumping well. And he said, doctor, I want you to write me an exemption for the vaccination. I said, what? I said, you're the first person who should be vaccinated because if you get COVID, you're going to die. Hmm. And, and, this, and interestingly, I was speaking to a friend of mine who works at a major Sydney hospital, I won't say which one, but they had two deaths of people in their 20s from COVID-19. One was 270 kilos, the other was 230 kilos. You think about how big that is, you see, and this is what, again, people don't realise, is that the reason why we've seen such an explosion of cases in southwestern Sydney and western Sydney 
before they got vaccinated is because 30% of Caucasians, 50% of Asians and close to 100% of people with darker skin or olive skin carry the gene for insulin resistance. When you're insulin resistant, there's more ACE2 receptors in the lungs, which means you're more susceptible to COVID. So how do you know you've got insulin resistance? Tendency to or frank diabetes, high blood pressure, high triglyceride, low HDL on your cholesterol and fat around the belly. And all of that leads to cardiovascular disease, fatty liver, gout, and many obesity-related common cancers. And so there's, there's a good reason why that area of Sydney, southwestern Sydney, western Sydney, where there's many more migrants than there are in, say, uh, the, uh, the, the upper north shore of, say, the, the, uh, the northern beaches, which was locked down by itself last, um, last Christmas. And no one said a word about that. They didn't say it was racist or dreadful that you're locking these people down, but, they, but they've been accusing people who've said, like me, who've said, we should be locking down just where there's cases. Oh, no, that's racism. No, it's not. It's just putting out the fire where there's a fire. So places like the Karingai district or the, the Hillshire have now got 84% of people second vaccination, 84% of people. Why on earth are we still locked down? It's just ridiculous. Ross, are you saying, this is one of my questions, I think you pretty well got to it, is that I, I want to know, is there a, a profile of the people who have been dying? And, 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 the, and the related question is, have perfectly healthy people been dying because of the Delta strain? No, no. I'd say, I'd say hardly anybody has died who was perfectly healthy. I know there was a, a 27-year-old Turkish man who was a fit soccer player who died from COVID, but he was insulin resistant. So you have to have either... Well, firstly, this as Paul Kelly, not Paul Kelly, the finance writer, but Paul Kelly, the, um, uh, the, the chief medical officer said oh. a few... A few weeks ago, no, not the singer. Um, the chief medical officer of Australia said a few weeks ago, this is now a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So the only people who are getting seriously ill from COVID or dying from COVID are either firstly unvaccinated, which is nuts, but those people who, who are unvaccinated also who are getting very ill have this insulin resistance gene and part of that pe people being morbidly obese or just obese. And in fact, in the in the US during their the big wave of COVID at the start of last year, um, the the death rates in the Latinos and the African Americans was three times that in the Caucasians because they're more insulin resistant and there tends to be more of obesity in, in that in those populations. So so that's another big deal. Or very very old, or very very sick with other problems, or very very rarely. There, there is a very rare genetic abnormalities in the immune system that make you more prone to viruses. So, for example, two brothers in their 30s living in Holland developed severe COVID. One died and the other one developed the long COVID syndrome. They mapped the entire genome of these two brothers and both of them had a defect in part of their immune system called TLR7, which is a really important part of the immune system that responds to viruses. So I, I think in almost every case, you can explain why someone is getting very ill or dying from COVID. And the best way out of this is, of course, vaccination. We, we've, we've heard recently that there's a new drug, a new oral drug coming through made by Merck called Molnupiravir, 
which is for people with very mild COVID symptoms. So the and the government's ordered about three hundred thousand lots of this um, of this treatment. So it's an oral uh, capsule that you take as soon as you start to get symptoms. So I would see someone turns up, have, has their COVID test, it's been confirmed as positive. They're feeling a bit sick. They've got the sore throat, the shortness of breath, or whatever. They're put on the monopiravir early. And what this study showed, the preliminary study of 775 people, is that the people who were given molnupiravir, only 7% were admitted to hospital, whereas double that, 14% in the placebo group. But there were no deaths in the molnupiravir group and about eight deaths in the placebo group. So this looks very promising. But just to digress back to vaccines... What really irritates me, Peter, about the whole vaccination thing is when people say, oh, no, 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 I don't want that dreadful AstraZeneca. I want the better Pfizer vaccine. Well, more the fool you, you now have a therapeutic egg on your face because when you look at it, yes, two weeks after the vaccination, there was a 95% antibody response or 95% efficacy response with Pfizer and 80% with AstraZeneca. But all that meant was that you had, therefore, a 5% chance of getting a cold with Pfizer and a 20% chance of getting a cold with AstraZeneca. But no difference at all in the death rates or the hospitalisation rates between the two. But now, after about six months, we're seeing in places like Israel, where it was mainly Pfizer vaccinations, that they're needing a top-up for their Pfizer. But in England, where they've mainly had AstraZeneca, their death rates are still low and they're not needing the top up from the AstraZeneca because it's been maintained, their antibody response. Ross, you know, the is, is there a lot of division within the medical fraternity, you know, your colleagues, yep. about the advice that was given out about AstraZeneca? Because in many ways, that has actually been a, a really important issue for turning people off AstraZeneca. And I think it was the Queensland chief medical officer we won't name who it was i don't want to name and shame but is there a, a, an agreement amongst the medical fraternity that that wasn't the wisest thing to say uh i think most of us think it wasn't the wisest thing to say but as you know peter there's never an agreement amongst the medical fraternity as there isn't in economics every there's always varying opinions and let me say about astrazeneca to put the clotting nonsense to bed it's my view that the only people who develop clots with AstraZeneca have this very rare pre-existing condition called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, which is a spin-off of the condition lupus. And they have antibodies to platelets, these people with this condition. Now, if you give them AstraZeneca, if you give them the AstraZeneca, you stir up this condition if they have that condition. That's five per 100,000 people have this antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. The rates in people below the age of 50 who are given AstraZeneca with clottings are 2.6 per 100,000 people. So not everyone with antiphospholipid antibody will clot with AstraZeneca. And for people, us old farts over the age of 50, it's 1.6 per 100,000 people. So we're talking about such a rare condition. And I've got to say in my own practice, because as you know, I'm not a GP, as a cardiologist in my practice, over the past two or three months, I've probably seen 20 people who've had a reaction to Pfizer. I've seen maybe one who's had a minor reaction to AstraZeneca. And with Pfizer, it's what we call a myopericarditis, where the heart gets a bit inflamed, the pericardium, the covering of the heart gets a bit inflamed, and it settles down in almost all cases. But the real problem, what people should be really paranoid about, 
is COVID because COVID is evolving, it's mutating, it appears to be getting a bit worse. And I just hope the Delta strain doesn't become the Delta Plus or some new strain that's even worse. Ross, explain to a normal person, which some people might dispute that I'm a normal person. Oh, no, you're not an extraordinary human being like you, Pete. But... <laughs> yeah, well, normal people probably are listening. And a lot of us can't work out how come hospital staff aren't double vaccinated to reduce the chances of them, A, getting sick, or B, spreading it to others. How does that happen? Well, it, it happens in the same way that there's a very high rate or was a very high rate of smoking amongst nurses as well. Just because you you are a health professional doesn't make mean that you have more common sense than the next guy. I mean, I, I can t tell you, Pete, when I was doing my specialty training, I did six months of respiratory medicine. And I worked for the professor of respiratory medicine who would tell people all day, every day, they were idiots because they were smoking. And then at lunchtime, he'd duck out the back and have a cigarette after his bypass surgery. So, I mean, it, there's just no common sense in this. And so you'll have still people working in the medical profession, still uh, people working as nurses, health professionals, who'll still say they don't believe in vaccines and they don't believe in COVID, despite the fact that they're treating sick people with these conditions. And I just don't get it. Anyone who has any understanding of science will realise that vaccination was the greatest advance of last century in medicine, and it's the only way to get us out of this coronavirus epidemic. It's the only way. What about the decision to... Um vaccinate children is this a good idea to contain the growth of COVID? well yeah that's probably the only reasonable way to do it but the reality with kids as i said a third of the of the common cold is a weak coronavirus so these kids probably already have enough antibodies anyhow as you as you know being a grandfather like myself pete the, the grandchildren are just walking Petri dishes. They're always sick with something. And it's actually very good for their immune system because the immune system gets a little bit of a challenge. So it's it just like if you don't do any exercise, your muscles get weak. If you're not exposed to viruses and whatever, your immune system gets weak. So I don't mind seeing my grandchildren or any kid with a bit of a runny nose. And a third of that is a coronavirus. So they already have good antibodies. So I'm not sure it's an essential thing that they are vaccinated. You say, but hang on a minute. If they then get the coronavirus, they can give it to their parents. That's why they should be vaccinated. It's just, it's just this is all just common sense stuff. And so I'm sick and tired of the peanuts, and they are peanuts, who are anti-vax or still vaccine hesitant. Okay. What about the surprising decision by our ex-premier, uh, Gladys Berejiklian, to give Freedom Day benefits to the unvaccinated in December? Was that, was, were, you, were you surprised about that particular? I, I was, I was appalled by that. I just thought the, the point is what that does will then say, oh, well, I won't, I would have been, th I was thinking about maybe getting vaccinated, but now I can just wait till December and I'll get back with everyone else, which, which I thought was wrong. Um, I'm not saying we should be punishing people, but what I am saying is that is a, oh, you don't want a two-tiered society, you can't do that. We already live in a two-tiered society, Pete. We have the haves and the have-nots. We've got the people who have a job, the people who don't have a job. We've got people who can afford private insurance, people who can't afford private insurance. And I'm not saying that's good, I'm saying that's called reality. But as far as vaccines go, the two-tiered society is a person's personal decision. It is free to get a vaccine. And, and I think that Gladys should not have done that. I think she should have said, 
we will evaluate when we will allow unvaccinated people to get back to normal. And when that should have been is when we saw that the virus was dying out because of herd immunity. Now, I believe the people of New South Wales especially, but certainly this country, have done a superb job in getting vaccinated. When you look at the numbers, the, the numbers in New South Wales are just extraordinary and close to the best places in the world in terms of vaccination. I think we're, we're pretty close to the UK. We're better than the US. Uh, I think there's about four countries that have, got, that have had a higher double vaccination rate than us. So it's just extraordinary what we've done, but certainly don't get there and say, oh, but all you unvaccinated or vaccine hesitant people, you're off the hook by December the 1st. That was just complete nonsense. So, so for, if, uh, and I guess you'd like the new Premier, um, Dominic Perrotta, to actually go back on that decision yep. or because, because of, not because you want to punish them, but if we go back to what you said earlier, if there are too many unvaccinated people co you know, cohabiting with the rest of us who are vaccinated, you're, you're worried that might create a new... That's my that's my concern. And until these people realise that their stupid conspiracy theories or their anti-vax nonsense, which I tell you, Pete, is there are so many things in medicine that are controversial. You can have an argument either side. There is no argument that vaccination. And they drag out this, this nonsense. They, they quote an occasional person who's reacted badly to vaccination, therefore vaccines are evil. If, if you look at all the therapeutic treatments we have in medicine, we have drug therapy, we have surgical therapy, we have radiotherapy, and we have vaccines. Vaccines are easily the safest of all the treatments we have. So, so yes, my concern is not to punish the people who are who are anti-vax or vaccine hesitant. My concern is that we have to have a global view here to realise that that mutant strain could get us and then maybe the vaccines won't work for the mutant strain. And the only way to stop that is to, is to, is to have very good herd immunity, which for influenza, you need about 70% of people to get herd immunity vaccinated or exposed. But I think with the Delta strain, it's probably somewhere between 80 to 90% of people need to be vaccinated or exposed to the condition but we don't know yet and until we know i think the unvaccinated people who've made that decision themselves because it's free for them it's not going to cost them at all the unvaccinated people should live a restricted life until we know what's happening okay so i'm uh, objective uh and let me represent the the, the people who uh don't want to vaccinate are there people who are so medically exposed are vulnerable so they just can't be vaccinated i would suggest to you possibly there might be about 20 people in australia who've got such severe immune deficiencies that their that their immune system won't cope with a vaccine probably 20 out of 25 million people the amount of people who've asked me to write them for an exemption is just ridiculous and there's no reason at all why they should be exempt and let me say just just on on that it's a great question if you've been treated for cancer, for a solid organ cancer, like lung cancer, bowel cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, you still have somewhere between a 70 to 80% response to the vaccine, not the 98% response that otherwise healthy people get, but a 70 to 80%, still a good response. A blood cancer like a leukemia or lymphoma, about a 50% response. If you've had a, a transplant, a, a kidney transplant, heart transplant, lung transplant, bone marrow transplant, you have about a 35% antibody response. 
And so it doesn't hurt you. It just means your, your antibody response probably isn't as good. In fact, a study came out the other day showing that, for example, if you're on chemotherapy or immunotherapy for a solid organ tumour, you need three vaccines rather than two, and you then get as good an antibody response as somebody who's not sick. So, no, there's, there's no reason. So you're not saying that the vaccine could interfere with you and all the other things that are going on if you have, say, getting chemo, as a doctor, and you, you therefore die. So people are afraid, afraid of death. You know that. I'm, I, I know that. Yeah, well, as Woody Allen says, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> and and that's, that's the point about all this. I mean, I, I can understand people are afraid of death. What they should be afraid of, Pete, is COVID and dying from COVID and, and having this damn virus mutate to become something even worse. Okay, let's skip over to another group who have said they're worried, pregnant women. Yep. Uh, is there any potential danger for the, the unborn child of a woman having um, a vaccine? No, but there is from COVID. Uh, that's that's what I don't get. And, and again, there's been this nonsense put out by the anti-vaxxers, not by scientists. Nonsense suggesting the COVID vaccine could make you infertile. And, and But what we do know is there's a number of cases of people who've become infertile because of COVID. Men who've become impotent because of COVID, not because of the vaccine. There's nothing wrong with the vaccine. But unfortunately, occasionally, one in a million people will get a clot and possibly even die because of the vaccine. But as I say to my patients, you've got a one in 200 chance of dying from COVID, probably more if you have one of the factors that I've mentioned. And in terms of your risk from the vaccine, they were in much more danger driving to my office that day and dying in a car accident than they have of ever having a problem with the vaccine. Ross, I'm going to ask this question because it's going to relate to another question that I want to follow it up with. Where did the Delta strain come from and why did it develop? Because the first, the first encounter with coronavirus, we did amazingly well and death rates was really low, what, yeah. except for poor old Victoria. Uh, but what... what where did the Delta come from and why was it so bad? Look, no one really knows. What we do know, as we see this with influenza every year, each year viruses, like anything else, just want to keep surviving. And viruses aren't living tissue. Viruses are a bit of junk DNA or RNA and a bit of junk protein all stuck together. And, and all viruses need a living cell to exist. So it's got to get into the body. So once it gets into the body, then the body's antibody system and, and total immune system chew up the virus and get rid of it. So the virus says, hang on a minute, I don't want to be got rid of. So it then mutates. And, and it's clear that the coronavirus is a very mutatable bit of junk protein and junk DNA RNA. And so what happens, we started off with, as the Donald said, the China virus, the Wuhan strain, which then, then mutated into the UK strain, otherwise called the alpha the alpha, alpha strain. Then we got the South African strain, the Brazilian strain, and all of those things happened. But then something happened. I, I think it started in India where the virus mutated just because it wanted to survive into this new strain, which has just become more contagious. Probably no more deadly than the Wuhan strain, but the, the reason why it's no more deadly is we had vaccinations. And I think if we'd have been hit with the Delta strain from the start, this, this particular Delta strain would have probably caused, caused millions and millions and millions of more deaths around the world. It's only been the vaccination that stopped so many people dying from this. Mm. Seems to me 
if a football team had the determination of a virus, that would be a very good football team. Well, hopefully, yes, yes. Well, let's not talk about football because, you know, I'm still in mourning. But anyhow. Yeah, I know. Um, Now, this is the related question. How important is it with the Western world getting on top of this to get as much uh, into the rest of the world, Africa, South America, those places? Because people like you and me, Mm -hmm. we we don't like to admit, but we are yuppies. We love to travel. But if the rest of the world is not vaccinated, but these people travel, does it make the whole world vulnerable again? Oh, of course it does. I think that's probably vulnerable. I didn't say vulnerable. Yeah, you play, please, please don't ever say vulnerable. It's like people say reach out. It's called contact people. No such thing as reaching out to people. You contact them for good to say. But anyhow, no, no there, there, there's no doubt about that. And even when you think about the altruism of making sure that the people in developed countries or developing countries are vaccinated, we're doing it selfishly for ourselves because until we get as many people around the world vaccinated, we will not see global herd immunity. So we'll keep keep seeing these mutating strains, which is what we've seen over the last two years with COVID. Uh, Ross, is there any one last warning you'd like to give the people out there who are still very, very suspicious of vaccines? Look, all I can say is look at the facts, look at the amount of people I mean, look at, look at uh, say, for example, Victoria, who still had a, a really bad cold spell because the virus loves three things. It loves concentrated uh, population, it loves air pollution, and it loves cold weather. So they had this really bad cold slap in Victoria. What, what happened on, on today, which is Tuesday when we're recording this? 1,733 cases. We're starting to warm up in New South Wales. What's happened today? 603 cases. Our case rates are dropping because the weather's getting warmer. So what, what I'm saying to people is don't be complacent. Don't say I'm going to wait for Novavax or I want the better Pfizer vaccine. I don't want to get AstraZeneca. Just go and get vaccinated. And the best vaccine is AstraZeneca. Please go and get vaccinated straight away because it's the best way all of us, not just you, all of us can get out of this. Ross Walker, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, mate. Thank you. And that was Dr. Ross Walker, famous cardiologist and very, very clever man. Uh, Our next guest is actually Ross's son, Paul Walker, who's been involved in a really interesting um, product that's been taken to market. The developers and builders of this country and probably the world will be very happy to have a look at. It's called Procure Pro. And uh, one of the co-creators was Paul Walker. And Paul joins us on Learning From Legends right now. Well, one thing I love to do is try to locate a business that might have uh, enormous potential. A lot of startup businesses, you know, are are unknown when they come along by definition because they are startup, but they have potential. And this one is an interesting one. Um, And uh, a contributor to the growth of this company and the starting of this company was a guy called Paul Walker. Uh, from Walker Develop. I just want him to talk us through what this business is, what it's going to do, and maybe we can work out the potential. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me, Peter. Uh, so, and uh, yeah, just Procure Pro, as you've described, is a technology platform that allows you to combine the commercial and legal aspects of construction, so tendering, letting, scopes, and contract, and wraps it up into a single platform of software, which makes life a huge, huge amount easier for construction teams. So um, just for your listeners, I'll just the background to how construction contracts 
have historically been put together. It's usually where they're combining the best scopes of old projects, which is highly manual, cutting and pasting Word, Excel, and email documents. And it's heavily reliant on the skills and competencies of the individuals that are actually doing the scopes of that particular project. But our, tech, our technology allows the construction firms to embed all of their corporate knowledge um, onto a contract management platform and allows them to compare, select, um, approve scope and contract all on the one platform. So they've got drop down menus of the best practice scopes. They've got safe work method statements. They've got all of their quality and controls embedded. So it allows them, it frees up their time from contract administration and allows them to work on making the contract, making the construction um, more beautiful and easier to, easier to be delivered. Okay. Now, let me, let me interfere now because people will be listening to me wondering. So I'll start throwing you man in the street type questions. Sure. Uh, who are going to be the, the prime users of this? Well, since we launched in April 21, it's already got more than 50 construction projects that are being utilised on it. So the first customers have been Roberts Co., which is um, Robert, uh, Andrew Roberts, who've, who've started Multiplex, his new construction mm -hmm. Hutchinson Builders are using it, um, AW Edwards Capital Group. Um, and the, the best thing for us, because we've, we've actually just gone to a seed investment round and we've just raised $2.5 million um, to accelerate our Australian and international growth plans. But the first six um, executives from the first six builders have also asked to be investors and they have wanted to invest in the product themselves, mm, which is great. So at this stage, it's big, big uh, building companies, but do you imagine this is also going to filter down to, to medium size and smaller companies as well? Well, yes, it, it, it largely is a subcontractor management platform. So it's a large builder that then has to subcontract out maybe 50 or 60 subcontracts on a, on a building project. And those 50 or 60 subcontracts, a lot of the scopes are then in, um, inter, oh, interchangeable with previous jobs. So it's embedding the best of those subcontracts, making sure the controls are there and allowing the construction co um, companies to continually build on their corporate knowledge. Mm. Have you been able to ascertain how many potential clients would A, want to do it and B, benefit from Procure Pro? Yeah, that's a very good question. We, as part of our investment um, memorandum that we issued to our investors, we looked at the total um, attainable market, um, and we went global. And you know, our vision, ProcurePro's global vision, is that together we can help build the world. So we were excited about taking this internationally. And there's, you know, we essentially any any middle, medium-sized project and above, our pl our platform can be used. So. It, we could be used on helping to build every construction project globally. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking of a colleague of mine who's a, a I, I guess you'd call him a, a medium-sized business. He might have five or six projects going on from, from pubs to office fit-outs and stuff like that. Is that kind of builder going to be benefit from having something like this? Because I would imagine part of his problem will be a lot of the administration while he's trying to supervise all the various work, uh, work sites, he also would have a, a lot of back office stuff that has to be done, which could either be done by you know a full time person or maybe he and his partner at night. Is that is that kind of person going to benefit from something like this? 
Well, that's exactly right. It is about freeing up the, the experts' time to allow them more time on site and takes away the contract administration issues for them. But it will depend on their size because to actually embed and change, to change, to change manage the way they do things, they would need to, you know, you, you're looking at a project probably $5 million and above that makes it worthwhile. If it's several contracts under that, it's probably not worth their while to transition. But over time, as technology is more readily available and some of the smaller subcontractors and smaller plasterers and things like slice the borders and things like that, if they're more technology enabled, then this would create synergies for him. And so what are you saying that if, if the, the, the whole cohort of um, businesses on a work site are very tech savvy, and are very engaged with you know, online processes, then lots of benefits could come from it? Definitely. And if you just think about how th something's being built now, it, yes, there's construction drawings, but it's also you've got to write down the way people have to do stuff and then what, and just to simplify it, the way people have to do it and the quality controls that they've got to use as they're, as they're delivering the project. If all of those are fixed and, and agreed up front, then the subcontractor knows what he has to do and so his, his, the way he prices it and the way he delivers it is going to be a lot clearer and a lot easier. So in theory, there's going to be a lot less defects because there's no worry about changing methodologies along the way because all of that's agreed up front. Hmm. Paul, is there uh, or are there similar type programs like this in other countries of the world and you're, you've actually brought it to Australia or do you think this is um, quite unique in the world? Well, the good thing for us, and that's, that's partly why, well, that is the reason why we wanted to tackle this problem, is that the, what's being used at the moment is, is Word and Excel and cutting and pasting from previous jobs. And nothing had automated it, this process for them to make it easy. And so we, we, we feel like this is solving a problem that hasn't been solved before. And that's why we've been able to, we, we, you know, the take up from investors and especially from our customers who became investors has been um, a credit to the product. But the other good thing is there's a big company called Procore, which is listed on the, um, on, the, on the NASDAQ and it's worth $12 billion from the US and they actually asked to invest in us. Um, and we declined at this time because we're focused at the moment on Australia. And ideally that as we go and go into, grow into America and other markets, that's the time to take on you know, a, a um, US listed larger construction platform. Do you have IP protection? Yeah, well, being a former lawyer, I know that there's no IP in an idea. So, um, and so you, you've got, it's about how fast you deliver and how um, attractive you are to customers. Because, you know, if you look at any idea, there's things that you, you can sort of copy an idea and modify it enough so that it doesn't breach any IP. Hmm. So we want to be the best platform and go as fast as possible so that our customers don't need to change. Yeah. Okay, you've raised, what, point. We've raised 2.6 million now in seed investment that the round closed um, a week or so ago. Yeah. Um, and that, that is enough to give us sort of, um, sort of headway for the next couple of years in our growth trajectory. And then we'd probably be looking for um, coming into series A round after that. Okay, and, and at this point in time, how big is the company behind us? Well, we, in terms of um, staff. Say employees for a start. Yeah, the great thing um, that the founder was able to do um, with working with me is we've been able to set up 
a great enthusiastic young team that are real that Australian based a lot of them based in Brisbane um, and they're very quick nimble and eager to please and so all our customers have been very um, impressed with the way that our team can respond um, and either problem solve or on board um, and there's there's currently 15 of us on staff now um, and the capital that we've just secured allows us to engage more marketing team um, and some more development team to um, to keep rolling the product out. Okay, great great story. Got to keep our fingers crossed that it works out for you guys. For people who are listening who might be interested, what's the website that you go to to get a full understanding, um, Paul? So it's procurepro.co. .co. .co. Great stuff. Well, thanks for joining us, mate, and we'll keep our fingers crossed that you guys kick a big goal with this one. Thanks, Peter. Really appreciate your time. Thank you.